0: Um, all right, let me start with a very quick um, review of where we are on context. Now, this is not something I'm going to write up on the board. I just want to kind of talk you through this. Uh, last week, we did a timeline on the board, and the timeline took us through, uh, beginning with uh, King David and Solomon, and we be- we just took a quick review to look at how the uh, the things were that we had done so far had played themselves out right just as a as a knowledge solomon and the people went into idolatry which led god's judgment on them right solomon in first kings we, we hear god say of him that he did evil in the eyes of the lord and therefore he tore uh, 10 parts of the kingdom from him put them into the hands of a king in the north and then he he allowed him to retain the two in the south do you guys remember why he let, he kept the two parts of the kingdom for him? Why? There you go. For the sake of David. Isn't that amazing to think that God, for the sake of the, of the faithful, for the sake of his promises to the faithful, that he will never break his covenant promises. For you and I today, how does that uh, actually affect us in our relationship with God? Okay, so if he promises, he is going to do it, and he's faithful to do exactly as he says. So God does not go back on his word, and, and it, to what benefit is that for you and I? If you consider the kingdom of, of uh, Israel, what we saw when we did the, the work that we did in it uh, all the way up through what was it was Second uh, Kings 14 and Second Chronicles 25, right? Up to that point, what did we see about the people and most of the kings of that time? What was going on for them? Idolatry. Very Okay, idolatry was a really big problem. Yeah. How many of the things did we see, in particular with Solomon, how many things did we see going on in his life where we pretty quickly started saying, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, let's just start with the wives. There's a few of them, huh? Yeah. To me, those were pretty blatant, and yet, you know, I do kind of think about uh, kingdoms and how they operate and how, they're, how they work. Even in our world today, you see kingdoms and alliances that are made and how they, they sometimes we make alliances with nations that we don't like very much, right? But we do so for the sake of peace or whatever. But Solomon jumped into it pretty quickly, didn't he? And he started out with the wife of the uh, the Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, which of all people for him to start off with, that just blew my mind because they had just come out of, out of that Egyptian captivity a few, you know, not that many generations before. And they knew the word of God, correct? Did Israel know the word of God concerning the commandments of God? How do we, how do we know that? That's an amazing shocker. And we never, ever do that, do we? That's a Yeah. Yeah. I I do think that there is a distinct difference in a person who stumbles into sin and sometimes we do often it's things like a flare-up of an anger in a moment that we just we, we didn't keep under control, but something has occurred or happened, and in a flash we we raise up and our anger might come out. For instance, that's an, an example of a momentary act of sin that's not premeditated and planned out. But when you have to plan a wedding with a woman all the way in Egypt, that takes some time in planning. That is definitely what you call premeditated, right? I heard a newscaster talking about, Uh, the the difference between an accidental killing and a person who premeditated. And he was talking about this man who killed his wife, and and they were describing her whole thing. It was horrible. I didn't listen to all the details, but it was all this gruesome stuff. And he says, and do you know how long it takes to actually (laughs) choke a person to death in the way that she died? And, you know, he went on to explain it. And I thought, yeah, that's a little premeditated. I mean, that took some time. He had time to reflect on what am I doing and stop, but he didn't, you know? right you literally had to drag up what it was you were doing right specifically and if you're going to other gods you didn't just you. no exactly there is a there is a great deal of work and effort you know you think about go back when um, Abraham was asked to take his son up and to take the sacrifice and remember all the time and the planning that w- went into that and and it, of course he didn't carry a sacrifice with him but he had to take everything else right and it was it takes time in planning to do that so So, with all that said, then we kind of set the scenario of understanding where Israel is at this point in history. This is a nation who knew the Lord, knew the precepts, the commandments of the Lord, understood the covenant that they had with God. Do you remember Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple later? How much of God's word did he understand? In that prayer, oh my goodness, he laid it out beautifully, and if anybody... <clears throat> uh, could have said a prayer like that and not known God wouldn't be an impossibility. This was a man who knew all about God. Now, he did not obey God, but he knew all about it. So he it was not in ignorance that he did the things he did. Now, we now here was what was interesting to me. In the north, we saw how many good kings? Yeah, a, yeah big old goose egg. Thank you, Susan. Very nicely done. Um, what, what do you think was probably... Uh, Contributed a lot to that situation. What occurred in the north when the kingdoms di- divided? Yeah, the two cities of Bethel and Dan with the calves where they went to worship. And why did Jeroboam set those up? Yeah, so they wouldn't. Isn't that amazing? All for his own power and control over the people, for his own personal glory. He, did, he set it up so that it was a stumbling block Israel. Now I understand that term a little bit better having studied the kings and prophets, how it became a stumbling block because the convenience of uh, what is the right word Um, exercising a religious act as opposed to actually worshiping God in obedience right? That to me was what I saw was the difference, and he allowed them to have something convenient. They could go in and exercise what they felt was their obedient act to God, and yet not in pureness of heart, and certainly not in compliance to the statutes of God, but they felt like, well, I went and I sacrificed. I went and I, I gave that libation, or I gave that offering, and they felt like, oh, check the box and go home, Right? And he gave that that opportunity for them to do it in convenience. And so that was the, the biggest problem, I think, that was going on in the north. And it was probably one of the things that contributed. Obviously, the hearts of those people still could have gone to the south. Do you think, just as a side thought, do you think there are any in the north that actually did go back down to Jerusalem? There had to be. Don't you know there's always a remnant? There's always someone, you know, in the group there that is loving the Lord in truth right and they sneak down and they do their thing in Jerusalem as they're supposed to and then they go back to the north so we we saw though that they had um, all these possibilities of false worship and disobedience Um, then there was Ahab and Jezebel we're going to talk about them in a little bit because believe it or not Ahab and Jezebel actually kind of come up in our Joel passage I don't know if any of you caught that or not but there's a there's a an issue that goes on in Joel um, when it comes to lamenting and mourning and weeping that we saw with Ahab that just blew my mind when we when we studied it the first time through and I'm going to come back to it when we do that. Don't let me forget him okay because he's buried here in this chart. Uh, In the south now we had mostly bad kings but we also but we did have a few good ones but what I found interesting was of the good ones they weren't Purely good, right? What, what do you remember about the kings of the south that surprised you? Of the ones that were good, what do you remember? So they turned the people's hearts back to God. Okay. They cleaned up the false idols and altars and-, mm-hmm. and the- Like for instance, Jehoshaphat did that, right? He was a, one of the major ones that did that. Uh, but yet on the other hand, what else did Jehoshaphat do? Who did he? he, Yes, he made an alliance with who? Who is the worst king of all his? Ahab. How did he make an alliance with Ahab? There you go. See, you guys are remembering so much. Aren't you surprised? Are you surprised that you're so? I am. I'm going, yeah. I'm good. (laughs) Okay, so we did see with, with Ahab, with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, he did do good, and God did pronounced that he had done right in the, in the sight of the Lord. But yet we still saw that he had some flaws, didn't he? And at one point, God had to undo a big mess that he made. Uh, One of them was this marriage uh, treaty uh, resulted in a mixed house, so to speak, the house of the north and the house of the south. And the blessing for David was to be for whose house? the house of Judah, and for the house and the lineage of David. And with the blending through this marriage, it caused then Ahab and his house to be mixed. And God ended up going, and what did God do to Ahab's house to fix that problem? He utterly wiped it out. Now, he'd done that before with other houses, but in this one, it's interesting because he literally was was undoing a mess that righteous Jehoshaphat had gotten them all into, you know, trying to be politically um, friendly basically to his brothers to the north. He probably thought he was doing something good, but do you think he consulted God on that? Well, there was. There was wars going on, in the and in the end, that's how Ahab died, because Ahab would not listen to the prophet of God, but listen to the prophets of Baal. Remember? So, yes. big. Pro- it was an interesting storyline to go through. You have to go back and reread that. On the whole, here's what we now know. This is where we're at. On the whole, we saw Israel basically failing miserably at being God's holy people. Would you say that? Yeah. I think so. Okay, so that kind of sets your mind back on where we left off last week. I wanted to tell you, though, I found, I, I went back to some old homework that I had done in the past because last week was on what particular nation and God's judgment of it? Edom, right? Edom. And um, we had a few questions about Edom and who was it. So tell me, who is Edom and who are they associated with? Esau, okay, and so from Esau, Esau then at one point, he and Jacob had had a tiff, obviously. Jacob had a lot to do with that mess. Uh, but in the end, they were reconciled, correct? What did, was Esau generous receiving his brother back? Yes. What did God do for Esau then because he had received his brother back? He gave him the land of Edom. Isn't that interesting? And I take it back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. What does Genesis 12 tell us about people who bless Israel? Those who you bless, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse, right? So when Esau, who was not the benefactor of the the passing of the mantle of that covenant, it was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, but because Esau had been eliminated, and we're not going to go back to that whole thing, but we know it's the sovereign choice of God because he knows the heart from the beginning. So he chose the righteous man of the two, and we see the unrighteousness of Esau, and yet God blessed him because he blessed Israel. What does that tell for you and I today? We need to be blessing Israel. We need to be speaking you know, in a positive light on them. Now, does that mean we agree with everything that the nation Israel is doing today? No, of course not. But I can tell you from my uh, recent experiences uh, and conversations, there are some people who really do not like Israel, even among the Christian family. And it still to this day shocks me. And if nothing convinces you, this study in in, uh, the Kings and Prophets should teach you a lesson about blessing and cursing and who, and wh- how God is going to treat those who come against him. And Edom was another example of that. How Edom, what, what did God say he was going to do with Edom and why? Do you remember? I am going to completely destroy them. I'm going to completely annihilate them. I'm going to, there's going they're going to become a complete uh, desolation and a waste. The, the land is going to become a waste and so forth. So Now, this was interesting. I went home and looked through some stuff. I have a study that was done by Jimmy DeYoung years ago on Esau. This is dated November 2001. This tells you how long ago God prepared me. What is that? 17 years ago to have the insight, this insight to share with you today. I just wanted you to know that. It's been a long time in the works. Okay, I'm going to jump all the way to the end. It's a long, lengthy study. He does kind of what we did, only in much more detail and overall. I mean, it was weeks and weeks of homework study on Esau and who, he, and who they were and what, how God, this nation, was developed, how they ended up where they are. You know, the land of Edom itself is, up, is the land of the three brothers of the uh, children of Noah, right, uh, that he birthed through his daughters, sadly. But the land, although it's called Edom, it was bequeathed to Esau, and it became his land, okay? So that was also a little confusing to me at first, But so don't get those two confused. Edom was given to Esau, all right? All right, now, by God, by the way, (laughs) this is interesting. We we came up to the point last week where one of the things I mentioned to you was that... um, Another Edomite in the New Testament days was who? who? Who in the days of Jesus was an Edomite? Herod the Great. That's right. Adamea. That's right. So here's what happened. Let me just kind of give you a history lesson that's going to connect the dots. It's going to bring you up to present day. And just listen carefully. And if it, uh, I might have to type this up and send it out because I'm sure you'll want it. But it's... It's really interesting. Okay, what happened after that 70, from 70 A.D. on? Okay, let's bring it forward. Because what we know is that Edom. there's a prophecy against Edom that God is going to do against them in that day. We know that in that day has not yet come, correct? We are even yet this week looking about in that day right? And it's yet forward. Um, So somehow, even though we know the Edomites are not really on the land as a nation, as a people group, we still know they exist in the world, and they are still acting as enemies against God and his people, right? So here's what uh, Jimmy DeYoung did. He took us through at the conclusion of it, to, sh- to bring us up to present day after we laid all this information down about who they were and how, how things had happened biblically. So now he says, what happened to the Edomites, now called the Idumeans, from 70 A.D. on? I'm going to read it real quickly. Under the Persian Empire, Edom became a province called Idumea. That's a Greek form of the word Edom. Don't have to write super fast, Martha. I'll try to type this up and send it out because this is going to be tough. I'm, tr- trust me. Under the Roman siege in 70 AD, a remnant stayed in Israel. The Romans began to call Israel Palestine. Who started to call it Palestine? The Romans. Okay, so this is not a, God, a name God gave to that area. It's Palestine is a Roman thing. The Romans called it that. It's a political name given to them by Hadrian in 135 A.D. Many Idumeans were sent into exile into Bosnia by Rome. Did you know that? That That's very interesting. Uh, November, now we're moving forward yet. Again, a pretty big jump. Uh, 1917, and General Allenby, and we've talked about him before when we've done our prophecy studies. Um, But for those of you who don't know, General Allenby, led the British forces fighting for the Ottoman Empire. And he goes into the Jezreel Valley. He defeats the Turks who have been in power for over 400 years. This marks the end of the Ottoman Empire. Pretty cool, right? General Allenby then goes to Jerusalem and he wants to do a mopping up exercise, just cleaning up all the little stragglers of rebellions that are still going on around there. And he, um, he rides up to the Joppa Gate. He dismounts at the Joppa Gate because he does not want to ride in on his white horse. This is very cool. What does that tell you about General Allen B? He, he had a respect for the scriptures and what was going to happen with Jesus one day, right? He, he says he does this because of his reverence for the day of Christ when he will ride into the city on his white horse. At the Tower of David, he gets his letter of surrender from the Ottoman leader. After he receives the letter of surrender, he sees a man uh, there on the roadside. His name is Husseini el Husseini. They're all Husseinis over there, right? Uh, it's kind of like Muhammad. They're all Muhammads. It's a very common name. Um, he is the highest-ranking Muslim of the city, and Allenby proclaims him to be the mayor of Jerusalem. What? I know. I'm like going, why would he do that? But that's what he did. Husseini's young nephew is standing by, uh, nearby, and General Allenby asked him about what was told by Husseini, that it was his nephew. He was 11 years of age. His name was Amman el-Husseini. Now, Amman grew up to be the Hajj Aman el-Husseini. A Hajj is a title that's given to those making a pilgrimage between Mecca and Medina, right? And he, and this little boy from the age of 11 he grows up and he gains power and strength and eventually becomes the muf- the mufti that's the highest ranking um, cleric of the muslim faith in in the middle east okay so he becomes a quite uh, influential Amman uh, al hussein he gets a, com- a communication from adolf hitler so now we're in the era of the of uh, hitler okay um, Hitler calls him to come and to discuss how to take care of the issue of the Jews. A plan Hitler called, the final solution. We've all heard of that. Aman El husseini then put up a powerful radio station in Monaco. One million watts of power. Do you guys know about that one? The Christian radio broadcast? Have you guys heard of that one? I th- If I'm not mistaken, so don't quote me, but I think this is the one that... Um, um, uh, Georgina and Lily have worked for, and they used to pro- they used to uh, preach over this radio station when they were overseas. And Georgina worked as the translator into English for these Spanish-speaking places, which is very cool. But I got to ask her about that to be sure. But I, if I remember right, that's what she said. Okay. So now Aman El Husseini then put up this powerful radio station in Monaco, one million watts of power, put up by the Nazis in 1935. This station was used to call on the demise of the Jewish people for the honor of Allah. The station is now used to broadcast. Christian radio. His words of hatred are on a plaque in the Holocaust Museum in Israel. So he was just validating that what he was teaching to us was truthful and that there's a plaque that even tells us all this on, on the wall there. Hitler encouraged Amman al-Husseini to use the forces of his people in Bosnia, the ones that had been sent all the way up to Bosnia, to go against the Jews to destroy them. This would have been the war around 1943 I'm, is a guess, okay? I, I had a wrong date in here, and I made a correction, but I'm still not sure if I'm right on it. But you you still are in the right area if you just understand Hitler, right? Okay, so it's the War of Independence. Hitler used the elite commando unit from the Bosnian fighting force, who were these um, Amman al-Husseini's, Hel, Hel, Hel relatives basically and those who had moved up into bosnia and he used those fighting forces at the apex of his blitz free do you know what an apex is have you ever seen birds fly and when birds fly they fly in that v at the the apex and at the point of the apex they put the in the military we call that the tip of the sword and our, our military base newsletter or newspaper that used to go out was called the tip of the sword which i think is kind of cool anyway so here it is <laughs> a blitz free free hitler would put his fighting forces in the shape of a v and go through the land just wiping out everything in his path at the point the apex was the elite bosnian uh, fight fighting force at the Holocaust Museum, there is a photograph of Amon el-Husseini inspecting the Bosnian fighting force, which he then took to Israel and used them to fight against the Jews. Amon el-Husseini has a nephew. You want to know who his name is? His name is Yasser Arafat. His real name is Husseini. His new name, Yasser was named after a terrorist who was his hero as a boy. And Arafat is the name of the mountain between Mecca and Medina. This means that Yasser Arafat also is a Edomite. Who are the Palestinians? They are the Edomites, present day Edomites. Yeah, many of them. Yes. Mhm. Okay. Are you talking about you this squad here for together? Something Yeah. All I know is uh, what I'm do what, what what this study did for me was brought me to pr- current history. Because we all th- think about the Edomites. That they're not there anymore. How's gonna God going to destroy them in that day? Well, because, uh, what do you call it, generationally and through their heritage, they're the present-day Palestinians. And they're all connected all the way back to General Allenby and what happened at that point and, and this progression of it. And what you also see is, who are they enemies with throughout all the history that we know of them? The Jews. They hate the Jews to this very day. So now tell me again, who are the Edomites, though, in their root? Who, what was their beginning? Esau. And what do we see in the, in the record in Scripture about Esau's uh, nation and how they treated Israel? They wouldn't let them pass through the land. They would actually go to war against them. They would join other forces and go against them. There's constantly been this back and forth. What we did last week is we put out a timeline, and we saw four times when the Edomites are mentioned on our timeline, right? And we pulled out those scriptures, and we plugged them in, and we see all the way from David all the way to the very last at um, uh, Ahaziah, I think was his name, was the last one. And we see that... Sometimes they were up and sometimes they were down, but they were always a problem, right? Yes. When When Esau Esau, Esau, did. yeah. Uh Yeah. I know, all over again. See, what we really see is that the root of this initially was this bitterness that was established because the nation that developed through Esau, they felt that they had been slighted out of something that they should have had, which was that land, because he was the firstborn. He should have inherited the Father's blessing secondarily, we also know, having studied it, that there's a spiritual warfare that was going on. What was Esau? How was Esau described to us? When we went into, I think it was in Hebrews, we looked at a verse about Esau. What did it tell us about him, uh, him there? Do you remember? That he was a godless, evil, uh, godless, ungod- or ungodly, I think it was said evil man, right? Something like that. I have to go back and look on my chart here for you real quick. But, but, I, but remember the scriptures actually told us what the, the problem really was. When, when we saw Esau, even though he had reconciled with his brother, one of the things Esau did when he came back and he, and he was angry with his parents, right? Who, who were the women that he married? Yeah, he married women from from Gentile nations, right? And there's a scripture in there in Genesis that says, and they caused uh, uh, Jacob and Rachel grief all the days of their life, and the and or um, Isaac and Rachel, whoever the wife was of those two, right? I'll get, the, I'll get the people down in my head here. But, and so it caused grief. And then what happened is later, even after the reconciliation, he then said, he looked to see, he noticed that this really annoyed his parents, and so then what did he do? He married two more. This time he married children of Ishmael. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. So again, you just see it his what his heart was about. And so on the one hand it was a jealousy, but really I would even say systemically more than that, it was about ungodliness in his heart. And and Hebrews tells us that about him. Yes. That's it. There you go. That's exactly Yes. He says, Take heed that there not be, like Esau, who was an immoral, godless person. That's I found it. So it's in Hebrews 12, verses 15 to 17, if you want to look at that. Because we talked last week about how does God know who to choose? How did God know to choose Jacob and not Esau? I think that that's a really good point. If you read in He didn't seek God. Yes. 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 Yes, exactly. God. was willing to give them access to him. Right. And that was, right. That was his and he him right. And so now, I remember when we first had for instance the 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 bombing of the towers here in in America at 9/11. And there was a big I want to say it was just this overwhelming hatred that kind of welled up even in us Christians and you know in our spirits we were just so angry about what had happened that we begin to hate the people right and what God said to me was now wait a minute I want you to slow down and think on this for a minute we understand that you are to hate the sin but you're to love the sinner why God does and what is God's desire that they repent, that all men should be saved, right? That none should perish. And so we have to have that same attitude. So I began to look at that. And I remember I, I, uh, I was teaching a Sunday school class at that time. Um, and we went through and we did a chart and we looked at the the contrast because one of the first questions was, and the, and people really did not understand this, is if if the root is still Abraham, Isaac, and Although it's not for them, it's not Isaac, it's Ishmael. But still, the root is it's still God. Is it not the same God? And so I had to go through and teach them, no, it's not the same God, and explain to them why. But then the other thing I had to say is, at the root of this is who really is the is the um, enemy at, at, when it comes to relationships like this. When it even came to Esau, what is the root of the problem there? He's godless. So who are you really fighting against? Satan. Satan the principalities and powers of darkness, right? Uh, Ephesians 6 teaches us that, that, the real spiritual warfare that's going on as we are trying to draw people to Christ is, the, is that Satan is an enemy of God, and he wants to draw people's hearts away from walking righteously, obeying him, and, and even if possible, he'll use the household of faith to act in an ungodly manner, and therefore, then deepened their their hatred and their bitterness towards God and godly people, and so with Esau, I kind of I kind of see this thing going on with his with the family and the bloodline is, you know, we can be we can see Esau, and Scripture makes it clear that he's he's an ungodly man, and that is the systemic problem with him. But the the spiritual warfare that was really going on there was Satan. Satan had had deceived the heart of him. He had willingly gone into that. God foreknew all this. That's why he chose Jacob, not Esau, which I thought was a great, you know, way of kind of looking at how do you know when God chooses? How do you know God is? How does God know how to choose the right one? Well, what do we now know? Yeah. (laughs) He's omniscient, he's God, he knit you together in your mother's womb, he foreknew you. He even knows your days before there even one is numbered, before one, is, one word is spoken, he knows it. And so God chooses, and he always chooses the man of, that has a heart of faith, that will bow a knee to him. So I just wanted to share that little bit with you on Esau and the Palestinians that God gave me 17 years ago, just for you today pretty fun, huh? (laughs) Okay, now we can move on, and let's move into what we looked at in the homework. Tons of homework, again. We're going to barely get through any of it, I'm sure, but we're going to make an attempt at it anyway. Okay, let's start with a real quick overview of what we see. This would have been day one's homework, she had you going through just to kind of look at the book on the whole, right She said, "Read all the chapters, read it all the way through don't mark anything. How many of you were able to do that? <laughs> Not me <laughs> I have my i 'm going going i 'm sorry, I have to mark <laughs> but still the whole the I, the idea of doing this uh, overview and then doing an observation worksheet all in one week was pretty tough on top of that, she added in a, all these cross referencing which was Kind of like doing many um, subject studies for us, where we had to go and do researching. So we actually did about three weeks of homework in one week, is how I see it. So I'm I'm just letting you know that to give you a little hug, because <laughs> I know you feel like well you know well it's really it's very um, discouraging when there's so much homework. That first of all you can't really take it all in. Second of all, there's no way we can discuss it all. But um, what I'm going to say is what I said again last week, which is, you know, the, the main thing for us in the book of Joel is to see the bigger picture of what's going on with Joel and how does he fit into the timelining that we've looked at so far. We're looking at the history of Israel. We're looking at the nation on the whole. We just reviewed our facts on who they are, where they're at, and why they are where they are, right? And we want to see now, um, according to... Um, guesses, basically, we are p- placing Obadiah and Joel at about the, uh, what was it, 8, i got to get my map out, 825, is that correct, where A- Azahiah uh, is the king, or uh, Joash, I think was the other king's name, just before him, correct? Do I have that right? I'm going to look on my little thing here. Yeah, Amaziah or Joash. Joash is just before him. So Obadiah fell in 841 to 825, and now we're in Joel at 825 to 809. Now, we had to try to determine where we felt like things fell on the timeline. Did anybody do any kind of work to try to figure that part out, the dating on this? What kind of internal clues do you see in the book of Joel when you did your overview that would tell you something about where it sat in history? Okay. That one's huge, Susan, because what do we know happens at some point for Israel and the temple? Right. When? When in the timeline? With the Babylonian captivity. When God bring, through Ezekiel, we see the, the, the three um, sieges of Jerusalem and we see it fall. So we know that it's before that for sure, because there's a temple, Right. Um okay possibly what and why is that okay right right well if you if you already know the dating, you would definitely be able to surmise that because you'd know it'd be about a hundred years before the occurrence of that if we're in the in the mid eight uh eight 20s. we know it's 722 before they go into Assyrian captivity. So that would be true based on on, on dating. This is how people date evolution things, you know. They have a presupposition about a date and they stick it into the machine and then they say, oh, we have an earth that's billions of years old. But, but the premise there is, if you, if you believe the 825, then yes, we are just before the Assyrian captivity. Are there any other internal clues that you can demise? Who is, who is he speaking to? To who? To Judah. Have you noticed that? Does he ever, um, as he's doing that, and he speaks about Judah, he also speaks of a city. What is the city? Jerusalem, so it sounds like this after the division, for sure, of the of the two parts of Israel, that there it's the north and the south, because he seems to to have segregate or relegate all his comments primarily just to the nation um, quality of Judah. Okay, those tribes. Um, Interesting. One thing I would say, Kathleen, about what you said is sometimes when you're looking at these internal clues, and I know we didn't have time to really dig this up, but it would be fun one day just to have time to really do this kind of an exercise. Look for internal clues and see if you can figure it out without looking at a map or, or a timeline that a commentary gives you. But in this book sometimes it's not about what is said but it's also about what is absent that can give you clues one of the things that is absent in the discussion here is um, the mention of any other exiles it doesn't mention about the northern tribes being in Assyrian captivity and the fact that that's absent when you look at the fact that what is the what is the subject that's going on in the book what is one of the, what's the major subject in regard to the, the concept of exiles? What's the subject? Pardon? Well, they're, they're going into exile because they not There you go. So it's a judgment, right? And So if the book on the whole is all about judgment and co- present judgment, coming judgment, right, and final judgment then what you can say is, well, it's interesting to me that he never mentions that the northern tribes have already gone into an exile, and he doesn't use them as an example for what Judah is not supposed to do or is supposed to do. Correct? Okay. In, That's a. I, I don't know what Kathleen said. In it says, I will remove the northern army far from you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. But But the northern army is the one that's coming against who? Against against Israel. Israel. So that's not, I mean, yeah, there were some tiffs between the two, but did they have these wars with one another? No. So that's not it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that helps clear it up. I like it when we talk that through. It, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of talking it through and going, "Oh yeah, that's right. That wouldn't work." But you know what they don't do is they do not mention Assyrian. They do not mention by name Babylon. They just talk about a a nation from the north that eventually God is going to deal with, right? Okay, so there's that. And idolatry is not really mentioned either, which we we know idolatry becomes the central thing that's going on. And yet in the book of Joel, what seems to be the issue there is he's specifically rebuking them for idolatry. It has to do with the heart something, right? It seems to be something a little less, although just as offensive to the Lord. However, it's not the act of idolatry because it's not named in that way, okay? All right, so those are just some ways of looking at internal clues. I wanted to take you through that because that's an exercise of reasoning that we don't use a lot and we don't get an opportunity to use a lot, but very interesting. Um, There are some external clues also now. She doesn't take us there, so I'm going to give you two. A couple of external clues that put us at the, the same place where we are on the map right now. One is that in Isaiah 13, 5, Joel in chapter 1, verse 15, quotes, is quoted. So I, Isaiah quotes Joel. So what does that tell you? Who came first? Joel. So Joel is before Isaiah. That's a helpful little clue, isn't it? Because if you can figure out where Isaiah is, because his writings are more documented scripturally, we have more records of which king was in place when Isaiah was around. Joel, we don't, right? He's a floater. He's just kind of floating around in history. We don't exactly know which king to affix him to. But Isaiah, we do know. So if Isaiah quotes Joel, then you know Joel was written before Isaiah. Okay, that's number one. The other one is Amos. In chapter 3, verse 16 of Joel, if, if we had more time to do more work on this, and, we, and we're not going to, but <laughs> if we had more time, um, Amos in chapter 1, verse 2 quotes Joel 3.16. So again, where is, where is Joel in relationship then to Amos if Amos quotes him? It's like, duh, yeah, exactly. Oh gosh, you guys are so good at this. (laughs) 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 Woohoo! See how simple it is? I'm not so brilliant after all. It's just easy. But you know, the thing is, how would you find that out? Well, if we were doing more inductive study on this, we would be going to those those quotes and looking them up and going to the cross reference and going, oh look at here, Isaiah quotes him. And if we were on the train of thinking of how are we timelining this book, we all of a sudden we would go ding 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 ding, right? We would we would click put one thing to another. But the problem is, is often we have forgotten about the historical context, forgotten about the timeline. We're moved on. By the time we hit the quote, we are we're just not in that realm of thinking and we just miss it. But it was brought up in two. Places that I did some research on, and I went, oh my gosh, those are good. Those should have been in our homework for us, because those, I think, are quite insightful. And they do help, because often what happens with a lot of students, if you're a student who wants to know, well, how do you know that? right? And there are people that way, and, and I'm not kidding you, they will sit with their arms crossed like this and look at you, and, and they, they really do, they don't want to just accept anything at face value, and there's nothing wrong with that. They want to know, what, how do you know what you know? And so here's a couple of possi- possible things that you can go look at that will definitely nail it down even closer, which puts it before that timeline, time okay, besides the internal things. All right, so now let's look. We're going to talk about the overview of the book. The author we know is Joel. And who is the son of what? Pethuel, right? That helps us a whole lot, right? Because we all know about Pethuel, right? Everybody here knows about him? Oh yeah, oh sure. No, we don't. (laughs) We know nothing. (laughs) That was a trick question. <laughs> that was a little sarcasm. He, we, he really we know nothing except that he was a prophet of God and he God used him to speak to the people at that time. He was a prophet on the land. Now, it's not to say that he's not amongst some of those prophets of the day even uh so, you know how often in um when we were studying um Elijah and Elisha and it would say this prophet and that prophet, but it would never name him. You know, he's, he's one of those. He's just, he's there, but he's just not named. Well, he's named here because God used him to, to send a specific message, and a powerful message and an important message. But beyond that, we don't really know much about him. So we can just move on. Who are the recipients? I love that. I think that statement is the one that kind of puts it all in a nutshell. You don't have to list all those other things because it says all that would include the elders and the others, right, and the priests, all the inhabitants of the land. Now, who does that mean? What land? Israel. And we know that because, did you mark all of your references and geographical references in there. I'm going to give you a little teaching tip right now about historical books when you're working in historical books, and you all probably know this already, I'm just going to speak into the wind for the the ones who don't know it. Um, When you are first going through a historical book, the most important things for you to know are events, places, and people. And so those are the three things that you are always to focus on first and foremost whenever you are doing your observation worksheets. Also, when you are titling your, your books, they're slightly done different than in the New Testament or into the, the other, like the epistles, because in them, what is going to be the main focus of your titling? Events and people, probably, right? And sometimes location, If the location is this significant thing, like in Jerusalem this or in Jerusalem that, sometimes that becomes part of your title. But just to know that people and events are are significant, make sure that you focus in on them, and be sure to mark geographical locations and time references. Always, 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 especially if you're doing it on your own, make sure you... Pull out a, a, a map, look around at your geographical locations to see where they are, because sometimes that's really, really insightful and you don't know it until you know it, right? All of a sudden you realize, oh, that's interesting, and you see a truth that really makes the storyline develop for you and, and have more meaning. The other thing is do your timelining. Give yourself some anchoring points of the, p- points of knowledge, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, Noah and the ark, and whatever, just go progressive. The cross is always great. Get it on there, you know. Is it before the cross or after the cross? Those those give you perspective as to what's going on. One of the most important things when you're talking about just marking the cross on a timeline is perspective of Old Testament, New Testament, and that makes all the difference in the world in how God is relating to his people and what's expected and what gets done, right? Okay, so Yes. yes. Right. That's exactly right. Yes. Yep. It, sh- it, it really is. And so timelining and maps and all that, when you're working with historical records are, are good. What kind of a book are we in with Joel? It's prophecy and it's history. It's a combo. It's a historical book and a pr- prophetic book, both, okay? All right, so knowing that, now what we want to do is we want to just look on the whole at book keywords. So when you went through the book on the whole, Kate didn't exactly direct you, direct you to do it totally, but I'm sure pretty soon you were able to pick up on this as you went through and tried to figure out what was going on. The, before you can even begin to go into chapter 1 and title it, and come up with what is the author saying and what is the theme, you have to know what the book theme is, correct? Because your chapter titles are supposed to relate to your book theme. Each chapter explains or answers whatever your statement is in your book title, correct? So in order to get a book title, you have to kind of look at the book on the whole, which is what she asked you to do. Uh, Tell me what you saw for possibilities on keywords. Let's just put these over here where we have a little more room. Book, keywords. All right. The most significant one is the day of the Lord. That one became really prevalent. What does that tell you? (laughs) And and since it, it is mentioned so profoundly, and it looks like how often is the day of the Lord and anything that relates to the day of the Lord addressed? In chapter one, is it? In chapter two, yes. In chapter three, yes. Okay, so since it's a keyword, it runs through the whole book. It seems to be a dominant subject. Almost everything else, even though there are other subjects that come up, those subjects are in relationship to the day of the Lord. So what do you think the book theme is? The Day of the Lord. So something about the Day of the Lord. Now, how much more you want to develop on that is up to, is up to you. But definitely want to see in the title of your book, the Day of the Lord being in there somewhere, right? Um, for right now, that's good. Okay, now what else do we see for keywords words in there? Okay, wailing. Lament cry out. If you had to sum all those things up, just off the top of your head, what are we looking at? What kind kind of subject are we talking about? Repenting. The subject of repenting. That's an interpretation after we've done our whole one week of homework. That's pretty dangerous to do generally, but we only get this one week in the chapter, so we're going to move on. So wailing and lamenting and crying out, the subject of repentance comes up as a major subject. How many places in the book does it seem to come up? Chapter 1? Yes. Chapter 2? Yes. Chapter 3? Yeah. Okay, if you, if you didn't mark all of those or anything that's similar to them, you would see them if you had. Okay? Um, He says in chapter uh, 2, verse 12 and 13, what? Return to me, right? With all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. There we go again, right? So we see that in chapter 2. Let's see if we see it in chapter 3. Um, well, kind of. Um, he talks about, in verse 16... The Lord, he utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is what? He's a refuge for who? His people. So the implication there would be that these are a people who have done what as opposed to what was going on in chapter one and two? They obviously had done, made a step of repentance and had moved in, in the direction of God, because you, God is only a refuge to those who turn to him, right? Those who remain in that place of rebellion, which is bringing on the judgments of God, would not be found in refuge in God. So and he's a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And uh, talks about strangers that will be in it no more. Um, he, and also of Uh, You know, regarding that, those that will not repent, those that will not return to the Lord, in verse 20 says, what is he going to do concerning uh, those people in relationship to Israel? In 19, they become, uh, there's Edom again, right? Egypt and Edom both becoming a waste and a desolate wilderness. Again, do you see the word there? Because why? Whoa, because of the violence done in... Now, who said that before? Where is that a quote from? Yes, something we studied just recently. Obadiah, verse 10. So now we know where is Joel in relations to Obadiah. After. Oh, my gosh. There you see. Ding, 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 ding. Everybody's going, oh, man, why didn't I see that, right? Because of the violence done to them. So here we s- see another quote. All right, so we see the, the subject of repentance coming up in this book, the day of the Lord, the repentance. What else? Okay. the la- uh, Jerusalem. Zion. Ma- when G- when G- Jesus, <laughs> sorry, when God says my land, what does that imply? I mean, wh- what does the emphasis seem to be pushing towards? What is He trying to draw you to see? It's mine, not yours. Uh, it is my people. It is my land. It is my. Now that's very interesting because in chapter one, what had happened in God's land? In chapter 1, it was stripped And he says something had invaded. What did he say? A nation, A nation had invaded. And then he uses that phrase again, my land. Very interesting point to, just to kind of pay attention to. Okay, so we see now, so now we have geographical location, right? Right? We have subjects here that are given to us, major subjects of the day of the Lord and lamenting and crying out to the Lord. We see geographical location of emphasis is in Jerusalem or, or uh, Mount Zion or Judah on the whole. All right. All right, here we go. Being cut off or uh, let's see. Well, we could actually add into that not only the cutting off, but symbolically in chapter one, what does the cutting off? And the destroying. What little critter? The locust. locust. (laughs) So the cutting off and the locust, you could probably add them in there with that same arena of words. that You wouldn't necessarily mark them in the same way, but you could see them under, falling under the same subject matter, which is what subject? If something is being cut off and the luck is coming in, what's going on? What is God doing? He's judging. So you see the subject of judgment. All right. Well, we're... Okay. And fire. And we see, by the way, army. We see soldiers right we see war correct what did God uh, say about his people on their land that they would go to a place a land of milk and honey and they would have what there in peace or rest enter into my rest is the whole concept in Hebrews right about entering into the rest of God symbolically it was to be uh, presented to them in a- through understanding by them being on the land and being at rest right so they were to understand it if judgment came because there was armies and soldiers and enemies, that's another one, enemies. Correct? And so now what you have to do is look at all those words and try to see the relationship of them to the subject matter of the day of the Lord, the concept of, of repentance, and how this judgment then is formulated in this book. So on the whole, do you have a pretty good concept of the book at this point, just by your key words? The word destruction is used a lot, devastation. Um, There's one more thing. When he says about crying out and wailing and lamenting, he also talks about um, the people gathering together. Do you remember how it's phrased? A solemn assembly. I don't know if you necessarily have to have that on here as a separate one, but it's, it's a good one, and it does come up, and Kay has us look at it in our homework this week so we're just going to add that on the idea of the solemn assembly sackcloth and, and ashes okay it's again, it's kind of, kind of. repenting exactly it, it relates because one is symbolic of the other correct alright very good now we're set let's title the book how, how do you want to title this book Okay. Verse 15 is an excellent one. For the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. That's a great title. Okay. You addressed one part. Would you say that the day of the Lord has an equal balance with a response that God is desiring? So would you want to add that into your title in any way in order to make sure that, that there's an understanding of He's not just warning about a future, something that's coming, right? Is he giving you a countermeasure, a way of escape from that day that's coming? There you go. All right, there you go. That's an excellent way of handling that. Okay, so let's put up here a a book theme. You could have repent for the day of the Lord. You can say, is coming, or will come, whichever, however you like to phrase that. Okay, and that was, um, let me see, what did I put on mine? Two. I put 2.13, so it's close, though. Uh, no, that can't be right. Oh, I know, I'm in the wrong chapter. 2.13. Okay, I put it from t- chapter 2, verse 13 rend your heart and not your garments now return to the lord your god for he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil so i used that one because it focused more on the counterpoint to it and i, I somehow that struck me stronger in the moment but i like 15 too so you can say 115 or 213 are possibilities Any others, any other thoughts? No one else has a thought in your head? There you go. Okay, so that's what she picked, 213? Okay, very good, excellent. I love that. All right, so that co- that's actually a really good one in 2.13, I think, because it covers both things, of the idea of repenting because a judgment is coming. So get busy with what you should be doing, which is repenting. Okay, so that kind of sets the overview work that we did on the recipients. Now let's just go through and do a very, very quick titling of all three chapters to get you started. You know always that what we do when we title chapters is it it's kind of like your first foundation. You just lay it down to get somewhere started. And then as you go into each chapter and you work through them and you develop your insights a little bit better, sometimes you tweak your titles. Sometimes I completely change my titles, but we want to start somewhere to see what we've got going. In chapter 1, what's, what is the, this is, I'm going to put on here, the major event, because I just told you, remember, that when you're working um, historical or, or books like this, you're looking for events uh, or people, generally. So, the major event, let's do chapter 1. Okay, the locust. So, something about the locust, right? Um, a locust plague, right? And what about the locust plague? Okay, where is the, the locust plague geographically located? Where is it? In what land? In whose land? Okay, let's go take a real quick, because I want to get you nailed down on this. Um, verse 6, my land. Again, there's that, that phrase, my land. And I think that's really significant in this particular book, because it seems to me like God uses that possessiveness about Israel and their land. Not just Israel, the people, but Israel, the land. It's his. And he keeps claim, claim to it and then holding them accountable in that relationship somehow, Right? Does he not? I mean, it seems like there seems to be a a feeling in this book of, you know this is my land, and you know that you are my people, and there's a day coming of judgment, right? And so then he basically turns them. One of the words he uses is be ashamed. So if somebody said to you, without explaining any further, but you know your your situation, if I said to you, "Shame on you," well, nobody could say that to me without bringing me to tears. <laughs> if my mother said that to me, I would be like, <laughs> you know, it would break my heart because immediately I would know I had done something wrong, and probably without my mother explaining, I would know exactly what I did, right? So when God says of his people be ashamed that had to cut deeply but it seems to me like as a father he is looking at these people as his possession and there's a standard of expectation that they know of and he knows of right and so we did look at that, and we're going to go back and look at that in our context setting here in just a minute. That was in your day four's homework. We'll go look at that in just a minute. So for right now, though, it's a locust plate, and I'm going to put in my land as a part of that title, right? And then what is the, what is the response he wants? He wants a response. So do what? Just think, whale. I love that word. It's used a bunch. You know, what did I say? I was last night, I kept saying, um, wine. I don't know why, but every time I went to type, I wanted to write the, type in the word wine. Wine. <laughs> I went, no, they do that in the wilderness all the time. I just laughed at myself because I thought, what's wrong with me? I whine a lot, apparently. But, no, whale. <laughs> Big difference, right? Whale, <laughs> he says, um, Before the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right about that one. (laughs) Okay, so that's chapter one. Let's go to chapter two. Same thing. We're going to do basically the same thing. Now, the disadvantage in chapter two is we have not yet done a whole lot of work in there yet. But on the whole, what do you see going on in there? Okay, we definitely see the return to me in 12 and 13. So we see the response. What's the, what's the major event? The day of the Lord. And concerning the day of the Lord, what does he tell us? Okay, the day of the Lord is coming. And then he tells them, return to me. Right? So that's the response. So it's really neat because you have the problem here of what's happening, and then you have a response that he's expecting from them or desiring from them, a call. Do you see that? So, there's a plague in my land, wail well before the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, so return to me. Okay, so let's follow that pattern in chapter 3. What do we see in chapter 3? It's kind of split down the middle between two kinds of things going on, right? It's kind of like, you, like a, there, uh, uh, there's a good news, bad news story in this one, right? Good news for who? for Israel and bad news for the nations. So somehow within in our title, if, you, if what we saw in here and you marked it were all these mentions of locations, and he talks about my people and my inheritance, Israel, and he talks about what he's going to do with them at the end of the chapter, he speaks about that I will avenge their blood, right? And he talks about them, be, him being a refuge and Very interesting in verse 17. Then you will know, because I'm going to be a refuge to them, and I'm going to um, sit in judgment against the the nations. But for my people, he says, then I will will have this refuge for them. I will be their refuge. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Again, the possessiveness of that land itself, the physical land, is his. So Jerusalem will be holy. Very interesting. When you are engaging in conversation with people who think that land belongs to another people group, or that they should share it with another people group, right? What do you see God saying about it? It is his land. It is belongs to who? His people. And ultimately, what God is going to do, according to what we're seeing on our key words list here, is there's going to be some kind of war and devastation and judgment against the nations in order for God to bring about what he has always said, this is what I am, am saying is is so. This has been my promise. This is what I have determined. This is what I have declared. This is what I have uh, set in, in basically my edict or my... Um, what was the, the the kings used to uh give not, not verdicts it must have been edicts right decrees. decrees that's the word thank you remember that word we used to use it a lot when we when we did our daniel study, he the the, the king would make a decree so God has made a decree concerning Israel and concerning Jerusalem concerning his people and concerning his land. And that decree is to stand. And this is why when we saw in Edom, Edom is going to be judged because they didn't want to bow their knee to God's edict, his, his decree concerning that land, who, who it belonged to. They wanted to uh, usurp that. So titling, give me a good title for chapter three. Okay. I will restore Judah. I'm going to give it a name because we make sure we understand who he's going to restore and now the flip side of that is and he will judge the nations. So you can say both sides of it. Um, I will judge the nations and I will, I put those in big letters, um, restore Judah. Okay, nice job, guys. We did that pretty quickly. Not bad, huh? So now we have a good overview of the book, a big picture of it. Um, Let's go and, let's see, how do I want to do this? Let's go ahead and do the ch- some chapter outlining. This point. Let's look at the chapter. So we have a theme for chapter one. Our our title ba- basically. What do we we have a locust plague, and he wants them to wail before the the Lord, right? Um, any other possible titles that say the same thing? Huh? Yeah, and it does say about, uh, interesting about soldiers in verse 6. It says about about them, what have they done? Yeah, interesting. Now, somebody asked me, who was it that asked me about that nation earlier and said, why is the word? Oh, Susan, that's right. Interesting. Ask the question again, and let's see what, what they might come up with here. Locus, locus, locus. Does anybody at this point kind of got a well it drew me too and so I decided to look the word up. Oh good. And it's uh fourteen seventy one G O Y and down at the very bottom it says figurative of swarms of locust in Joel. Woohoo. All right. How nice was that for you? Wow. They give you the exact wow. and they just gave you Joel. <laughs> okay. And how do we know that it's figurative? about nations. How did chapter 1 relate to chapter 2? What's going on in chapter 1 is the locust. Yes? Are they literal locust or are they figurative? They're, they're literal. Okay, and how do we know they're you're correct? Why are why are they literal? How do you know that? Right. Yes, and, and when, when you see the result of the work of the locusts, what is it that they are doing? Pastures and the, and the crops and the trees. So everything is attack against what kind of thing? The growing things, right? In chapter 2... I, um, Susan and I were talking about this earlier, and I said, you know, do you remember how many times we've talked about the synoptic gospels? When you get a storyline about something that looks the, uh, the same or sounds the same, that if you lay your synoptic gospels side by side in a, in a sheet, just just do a copy and paste with a, with a, um, a uh, like on a chart. Put your scriptures side by side and start marking them with your keywords and your subjects, and com- that way you can compare them tit for tat right as you move along. And right away you can tell, is it talking about the same thing or is it not talking about the same thing? So for next week's homework, you might want to do that for yourself just as a, an exercise. Or you know, Kay's not going to tell you to do that, but it is a wonderful way of being able to clarify for yourself that chapter 1 is is a literal locust invasion but chapter 2 is going to be also an invasion but what kind of an invasion of people armies right it's going to be about war so in chapter by doing that you'll be able to make that clear distinction and really solidify it in your in your thinking that of how it's made the, the transition. Now, why is it that people have trouble with this? Well, what is going on in chapter 1 in the, way, the kind of the way that he, he speaks about the locusts and the things that are going on? How does it compare with chapter 2 that people could get these things confused? Okay, for one thing, he speaks about those silly little guys as being a nation, right? Okay, do you think that that might have even been a deliberate move on God's part, to use that word, what did that do in your brain that, you know, we feel like is kind of messing with us, but what does it do for you then when you make a move into the next chapter? What is chapter one showing you that has occurred? Okay. right? And concerning the locust, what's going on in chapter one? Devouring. Devouring. There's a devastation taking place. There's a destruction taking place. It's specific to the plants, but when you move to chapter two, it's the people. So if he drops in the word nation and uses it in relationship to the locust in one, then when you move into two, what has he just kind of done for you? He has symbolically described to you through the picture of the locust what's going to happen in the days when, the, when these end-time events occur with, with nations of people. He's saying basically in a similar way as these locusts have done what they have done, then in the days to come, in the day of the Lord, when I bring the north against my people, this is what's going to happen. It's equally as destructive. So what he's done is he's made a play in a in a symbolic manner of using the locust to, to show them something that's going to happen in a future time in a different way, but similar. I also think it's important that using the play that they're familiar with. I think that for Jewish people specifically, there's a reason it's locust. Yes, there is. Yes. Why are they familiar to them? What did we look at historically when we looked at the context, really, of this book? Yeah, there had been plagues in Egypt where God had once before this used locusts in order to turn the heart of his people toward him and to basically um, subdue or to put into um, submission, right, Pharaoh. He wanted Pharaoh to bow to God and what God's wishes were for his people, and he wanted God's people to see his power and what he has control over. Tell me, um, Lisa and I were talking about this the other day at lunch, and I was saying, isn't it interesting how in the world today, when you see national catastrophes occur, and if, if, if somebody should say to you, wow, that's God's judgment, what do people say and how do they respond to that? Okay. To page hmm. And they understood that, that was a because they called her a day of And the whole state, um, Interesting what, what a hundred, not, not even a hundred years can do. This is in Minnesota which, I, if I'm not mistaken, is known today as the witchcraft capital in the United States. Somebody has to look that up and tell me if I'm right on that, because somebody told me that, and I don't know that I've ever actually Googled to see. But I do know there's a lot of new agey stuff that goes on. There, another place is Oregon that's really notorious for that, okay? Where? In Minnesota? Okay. So it's very interesting to me, if you think about from 1877 in Minnesota, when they saw a national catastrophe, and in this case it was actually locust again, and so that's probably why she pulled that one example out, just to use it as, again, another example that relates to Joel. But those people at that time, American citizens living in the United States of America in in almost current history, not quite, but almost, right? They recognized it as being the hand of God. They had no problem with that, and they went into a, a um, statewide day of repentance and of fasting and of prayer. Wow. Okay, so if, if we have a flood or a, or a major fire or an earthquake or, or a volcano And anything like that, anybody would possibly suggest. Now, I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say I always know that God is making judgment when he does these things. There are sometimes there are just natural things going on. I get that. However, if you see natural disasters, a monumental proportion, things that are over the top and seem to be even... What is the right word? Um, surgical strikes. You know, you can see where um, maybe a hurricane is coming through. It hits a certain place, it pulls back, and it goes and it hits another place, and it pulls back. And in the meantime, it missed this pl- place in the middle. And you're like, "Whoa, how'd that happen?" Right? Oh, okay, Ma- yeah, Salem is, but in in Minnesota. It's one, it, it is considered a, like a, anyway, that's what I was, but I'd have to look it up to your right. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I do know, as you all said, it's a, it's a major place for Muslims in the world today. We know Minnesota has taken a stiff turn. Minnesota is where I was born. Yes. Yes. What a... Dis- right. Who knows what was averted? You're absolutely right. But, you know, I just kind of wanted to bring this up on the whole because I think that it's very interesting to me how... Um, I know that, the, that one of our kind of famous pastors uh, got into some big trouble one time. We talked about a flooding and how he felt like it was a judgment of God. And everybody just came down on him like... Pray, without even stopping to say, you know what, maybe, maybe we, maybe we should go to fasting and prayer and ask God to show us if we are in sin, do we need to correct something? Rather than immediately just discounting it and saying, you're just mean and, you know, you're horrible or whatever. When you and I looked this week in the Word of God, what did we see God is not doing, is not in charge of? Let's go look at those things. Day four on your homework. We started, so this is kind of be a gonna be kind of a context thing. What do we see in somebody read for me Joel 2, 12 to 14 first? Let's start there. I want to see what it says in 12 to 14 and get that noted here on the board. Because 12 to 14 gives us a clue um, about calamities and what God wants us as his children to to do when we see these kinds of calamities happening in our world today, right? What do we see in 2, in 2 12 14? What does it say? Wow. Okay, so in Joel 2, God says about in response to a national disaster that's going to be happening in that day, right? And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to return to me. So God's call is to repent. And I'm going to put little eyeballs up here, okay? I don't know if I can do it again <laughs> from this. Okay, when you see things that are, that are in particular when you're speaking about national or, or natural disasters like hurricanes, like, like uh, tornadoes, like fire, fire that started from lightning, uh, flooding, earthquakes, anything like that is obviously not man-made right but that is God's God says when you see these I want you to look and I want you to at this point he says turn to me and repent now here might be the situation in your personal life you might turn and look to God and say God show me if there's anything in me as David did show show me if there's any evil intent in my heart or any wickedness within me and turn me toward your ways and for many of us we may look and we say Lord you know I am walking with you. I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing the very best I can, and my life is, is in good shape. But then what would be step two for you and I? Thank you, Martha. Say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, what about those around us? Are you, your, your immediate world around you, are there people in your life that you know that these things could be happening because of them. I th- I remember there was a uh, tsunami that occurred overseas, and one of the people were, was over there who said she was a missionary. She was uh, saying on her Facebook blog. Um, and she used to go there for the, uh, she ministered minister when she, uh, these kinds of things would happen. But, you know, she told the whole storyline, and I think it was even printed. So, so many of you may know this storyline. But the people, when that tsunami came, the Christians had wanted to celebrate Christmas in, their t- in the town, right, in their church. And they had to get permission from the locals for it. They would not give their permission. So in order for them to celebrate their Christmas they had to leave they had to pack up this, from the city leave and go up onto a mountain at a distance away from the city out of the city ordinance area in order for them to celebrate Christmas right they got up on that mountain and then guess what hit that next morning the tsunami and and it turns out it was on a day of celebration where they were celebrating the 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 gods of water I know. Whoa. I remember this whole—I'm going to see if I can find that. I have to go and do some research, see if I can find it. I'll bring it back in and read it to you. But I remember just being blown away by, isn't that amazing how God took the elements? Nobody could do this but God. It was a tsunami, right? No man's in charge of that. It hit on the exact time and in the an exact place of these people who were basically snubbing their nose at God, rejecting God— um, refusing to allow Christians to worship God even in their midst so that they had to flee. And God got them out of the city, and he, and he judged them. Now, if you were to say at that time, and that's not been that very long ago, it's just been recent because my, my friend just went. I mean, it's been several years, but um, it ha- it's not like it's ancient history. It's recent history. But if you were to say in a conversation with someone, well, that could be God's judgment. Maybe God's judging them. They would bite your head off, right? What does God tell us, though, about those kinds of things? What did you learn this week? Absolutely. What did God do in Exodus 10? Let's look at that. What has God done to show us in the past? Let's look at what has God done. So you looked at Exodus 10, 1 to 20. What did he do there? We just talked about it. Yeah. Locust upon Pharaoh and Egypt, right? OK? That was one. We looked also in Isaiah. What does Isaiah show you? Isaiah 45? six. Somebody re- read that one, because that one is really beautiful. That one is so specific. Um, people who don't believe that God brings this kind of des- devastation, and they think, no, God would not do that because he's a good God, right? He's a, he's, he's a holy God. He, he loves people, Right? And yet, what does God say about this kind of thing? Read that, Martha. Oh, you don't have it? I'm sorry. Does someone else have it handy? It's Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. 45, 45, 6 and 7, I think. Are you doing 26 or 45? (laughs) Isaiah 45. Is there a 26 too and I skipped it? Okay, go ahead, Martha. Isaiah 45 67. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well being and creating calamity. I'm the one who does all this. Wow. So God makes it pretty clear that yes, He does cause calamity, that He can bring it. Now, when God brings it, is He doing it for. D- you know, evil intent for for the demise of somebody who's innocent. No. Now, do you sometimes see the innocent caught up in it? Do you remember when Babylon was taken captive? Who Who got caught up in that that was righteous? Daniel and his three friends, and they had to go into captivity also, right? And there probably were even many who died because of the soldiers who came in there, right? They didn't make it into captivity. They literally died. But yet God still chose to bring calamity upon them. Why? Judgment. 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 Which, exactly, judgment. So in Isaiah 45, he says that God causes calamity. Very good. That was going to be my follow-up. So, so uh, here's that. So that God causes calamity, and here's his purpose. So that the inhabitants of the earth, H-A-B-I-T-A-N. I can't talk in front. <laughs> the, so the inhabitants of the earth, finish that sentence for me. Learn righteousness, that's right. I remember that. Very cool. So there's his purpose behind bringing calamity. So if he brings calamity, if he brings an earthquake, if he brings a locust plague, if he brings a a tsunami, if he brings a fire that devastates lands and burns people out, if he brings a flood and totally destroys an area, you know, especially when they're really specific, you know, we always want to go to and immediately in our minds, um, well. Uh, For instance, um, um, is it Louisiana? What is the city that sits in the bowl? New Orleans, Orleans, right. What about New Orleans that sits in the bowl? Oh, well, they sit in a bowl. Of course they're going to get flooded. Well, yes, but who brings the flooding? You still can't negate the author of the flooding of the water, right? It's still God that does it. And it's interesting to me how sometimes some places, get hit over and over and over. And when you stop and you look at what's going on in those locations, can you possibly see that God is doing that? Maybe, right? Possibly. Yes? Yes. Yes. What about 9-11? Yes, but? Yes. Yes. Very good, Carol. Exactly. You know what? Why do you, th- why do you think it causes Christians even a kind of a tug of war in their spirit about it? What do you think is the issue there? Because he allows it, we don't seem to totally grasp it. Why not? Okay. But God himself has no problem with death because we're his. And Jesus died. Right. With death. We're right. Now or forever, we're still right. But in our mind it's very finite. We okay. So we struggle because of, the, of our idea of life and death, and we feel like if God really loved us, he'd let us keep living, and that the, and that the righteous would not die with the wicked, correct? Um, and even in, I remember the story of Lot, and, and when uh, Abraham was acting as a mediator between that, and would, will you kill the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous? And, you know, and at one point, what God does is he takes Lot out, which shows that God, pictorially, it shows that God does rescue the righteous, but it does not mean that there are not times when, like, for instance, the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity, that there were not some who were righteous that died with the wicked, right? How many of our wars in current history have we had righteous men go to serve in war and die, right? Does that mean God does not love them? No, it does not. We have a real, so what is the antidote to that? Aha. Uh-huh. okay. All right. How are you going to, either for you yourself or for others who struggle with this concept of if God brings calamity, that makes God evil or that he's doing an evil deed, how do we counter that so that people can grab hold of understanding who God is and how he works? What must we know about God? Okay. All right. Can you and I stand against the doubts that come if we don't have a firm grip and a knowledge of the Word of God and who our God is? Is it an essential thing for you and I to understand who God is and his ways? Mm -hmm. Right. So a person who doesn't really know God or know anything about God would look at this and say, What? God causes calamity? No way, that's not the God I know. The God I know is the God of love, right? they a step further and say, well,
1: I'm not going to uh, worship that kind of a God.
0: That's exactly right. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so what is that? There you go. Mm-hmm. That's exactly my point. So ignorance, I think, is the enemy that gets within our hearts and causes this struggle. We look at a 9-11, for instance, and we say, what? There were righteous people in there. There were children. There There were innocent men and women just doing their daily thing. Why did they have to die? Well, you tell me, what happened to a nation in that day? And probably what happened in the hearts of many Americans, even in that, or actually globally for that matter, but I'm only talking for us right now, but in America, what what happened to America, what happened in the churches, what happened in the communities when that time occurred, when a calamity occurred, what happened? To this very day, I remember my, the church I was at that time, I was brand new because we had just moved to Austin. But they asked me to teach on that subject because they were so struggling with the idea that this horrible thing had happened. And, the, and then they were confused about Islam versus Christianity. I mean, it, it caused all kinds of questions. And people really started seeking the Lord on that day. There was a result, as it exactly says in, in, in Isaiah 26. What was the verse on that, by the way? 26, 8, and 9, that God causes calamity so that the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. The point to it is, what happens, here's another good one, what happens when you and I don't have a na- a, a national thing occur, but what happens in our own life when calamity occurs? Our house burns down, or we get cancer, or... Um, you know, a husband or a child dies or, I mean, something like that. What happens in our personal life in that moment? Okay. Do you think that God is using that? Does that mean that God wanted a person dead so that you'd turn? No, not, no. But what, What? you have to put the whole picture together. Again, you have to go back to, fully knowing who your God is. First of all, he already has numbered your days. Is that a comfort to a person who just lost a child to know that from the very moment your child was born, God had his days numbered and not one day could be added or taken away from it in your power. It's all in his hand. Knowing that gives comfort to the heart of anyone that is grieving, right? Just to know that it's all in God's sovereign plan. If you can come to a place where you trust God, where you know he's righteous and holy, and yes, he's loving, but you also have to step to the other side, and yet he's also righteous, and he's righteous in judgment. And often the only way people come to know him, the only way people come to bow their knee is through calamity and adversity. And if you look at a human life from the perspective of that this temporal world versus eternity, what is more significantly important? I think eternity, I think eternity <laughs> right? I think eternity. I think that, you know, my brother's death at the age of 11 was well worth it for whoever, including probably myself. It, it had a great impact on my walking toward God. And, and I think that, that even the death of my young brother if what resulted was eternal life for me and for others, it was worth it. Because now I have a perspective that says, yes, I missed my brother, but he's in eternity. And and I will see him for eternity. Right? And so knowing that puts the perspective in its right place again. So what we're learning this week by just looking in the context setting about things like calamities, like the locusts, like the plagues, like the de- devastations that are going to... What about at the end of the age when when God brings the day of the Lord? And do you remember when we did Revelation years back? All those plagues, all those natural disasters, the, the seas, the grasses, the trees, the heavens, the earthquakes. I mean, it is... It, it is beyond our our scope of imagining. And what does this author say about that day in chapter 2? I think it's in the first couple of verses. Yes. Who does that sound like? Who else said that after he saw his visions of the, the kingdoms to come? Babylon, Medo... Daniel, Daniel did in chapter 12 almost word for word Okay, you were you were in uh Joel 2 the first couple of verses. Verse 2. She she just read verse 2. And it says that in that day it'll there is a, it's a day like none before it and like none that will come after it. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So what I'm saying is when we perceive or when we evaluate these things that God says he's doing and has done, and we we know that when we look at chapter 1, what he did in that day was devastating. How much devastation came to the land? We are almost out of time, but how much devastation happened in chapter 1? Yes and boy, and I wish we had time to discuss all of these things because I'm going to write these up here for you um, the 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 paragraph divisions. I divided it in this way, verses 1 to 3, 4 to 7, 8 to 12, 13 and 14, and then 15 by itself, and then 16 to 20. That's how I did it. Oh, you did too, huh, Kathleen? She's nodding her head going, yeah, good job. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm so glad you approve. Okay, <laughs> that's awesome. So let's finish the title here for chapter one. Locust have done what? They've invaded what? God's land or my land? Right? He says, they have invi- invaded my land, and then he tells them to do what? In response to this, cry out to the Lord and to repent and to and to uh, wail, not whine, wail. Okay, let's go with one to three. Do I have time? Oh, barely. One to three, what's go- he tells he gives them a command. What's his command to them to do first? Listen. listen. Oh my goodness. Anybody do a word study on that word listen? I thought this was pretty funny. Listen with the implication of heeding and responding to what is heard. <laughs> Not just hearing it in one ear and out the other, but to hear it with the anticipation and the expectation that you are going to respond appropriately, right? I love that. So he says, first he says, listen. And then he says to, tells them another commandment. What are they also supposed to do besides listen? Tell your sons, Right? And you can go on, but this is enough. Tell your sons, let the, those sons tell their sons, and then let those sons tell the next generation. What does that tell you about this message in the book of Joel? Who else is it for? Every generation that follows and follows and follows and follows. Guess what? Is it, in other words, it's a, it's a message to you and me. It's not just to them back there, it's to each generation. Keep telling them about what has happened in this land because there's a, there's a truth in this, there's a message in this. I have something to say and I want you to hear it and I want you to listen with the expectation of doing something about it, right? Responding appropriately. All right, 4 to 7, what has invaded? Locus. And what has resulted? Okay, the land is invaded and is desolate, is what you said, correct? I, and I, there was another one, that the vine is a waste. Any of those terms that are in there, are all the, basically are saying the same thing. What has happened because of the locust? They've consumed everything, and they've utterly destroyed it, right? So then in, 12, in 8 to 12, he gives them another command. What does he tell them to do? Huh? Wail and be ashamed. I love that one. Did anybody look up that word by chance? Be ashamed. Be ashamed. It says, to feel shame by having done something wrong, to feel humiliated. Now, why would you feel humiliated with locusts that have come upon your land? Whose, Whose fault is it that the locusts have come? Why should I be ashamed? Why is it my fault that the locusts have come? How do we know it's my fault? Okay. Yeah, good girl. What had God told Israel that they should know that this is their fault? Very good. Because historically, we went back and we looked, um, we looked at uh, Deuteronomy 28, Right? And it was verses, it was a long one, 1 to 45. And what we saw is God gave the law, and God warned them, and God promised them. Right, in that covenant. It was a conditional covenant. I'm going to put this over here. A conditional. And we know all about that since we just came out of that study, right? About the conditional covenant. And he said you can either be blessed or what? Or be cursed right? He'll bring blessings upon you in the land, or he'll bring cursings upon you in the land. Isn't that an interesting thought, that God can actually curse the people? It kind of sounds counter to everything that we understand about who God is, and yet in, in context to what we're studying here about God and what he's trying to do, what is his purpose when he brings a curse or a judgment? so that the inhabitants of the earth will learn righteousness that they will repent which he says in chapter 2 repent and re- and return to me okay so and what does that tell us about Israel at this time in history than in chapter 1 where are they in their relationship with god huh Obviously, they're in some kind of disobedience because he says, if you obey, you're going to be blessed, but if you disobey, you're going to be cursed. Would you say the locust is a cursing? Do you, do you think Israel understood that? So when God said to them, be ashamed in chapter eight to, or verses 8 to 12, be ashamed. And why? Yeah, and what's the result of what they've done wrong? Judgment. The harvest has, be ashamed, the harvest is destroyed. Something along those lines. You could have picked a lot of verses. It any one of those, they're similar. So you don't have to change your titles if they're, as long as they convey the same concept, okay? And I do think that you, you'll see it. Um, be ashamed because the harvest is destroyed. He also says then in 13 and 14, another command. Now what does he want them to do? Yeah, gird yourself. Gird yourself with sackcloth. I wish we had time to talk about all those. And then, and also do what else? Yeah, proclaim a solemn assembly. You can add in there, and fast. I missed that part, but yes, at the fast and the solemn assembly, right? And what did you learn about a solemn assembly? What is the purpose of it? What is the result of a solemn assembly? They will go to the Lord in, in sackcloth. If you're going to in sackcloth, what does the sackcloth convey? Mourning, repentance, right? Wow. This is, a, this is telling you without telling you. He doesn't actually say, you did this, you did this, you did this. He, what he's doing, he's saying, I have, sent, I have sent the plague. I have sent the locust. So what does that tell you? Listen wake up, right? Did he not even say that? In verse 1, he says, awaken. Um, In verse 5, awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you vine drinkers. Now, I think that was wine drinkers. He says uh, here, there's wine drinkers, there's sweet wine, and then there's new wine. And they're all in different stages of wine development. I did keywords on those. I thought it was interesting. Okay. Verse 15, he says, now, I'm telling you to do this because what? He gives him a warning in verse 15. He says, what, what's going to happen? He says, the day of the Lord. And then this is where he says, will come. And then I love this. How many of you caught the, wor- the first word in verse, I think it's 16. Yeah, verse 16. What's the first two words? Has not. What is that, te- what is that implying there? And what follows it? follows it that food has been cut off and what else has been cut off? Joy. Okay, joy from the people. So food has been cut off and joy has been cut off. In the covenant that God made with Israel, what was the promise to them if they would obey him? There would be good food, the barns would be full and so forth, and there would be joy of heart, correct? So he's saying, has not this been cut off? So what's he actually really saying? He's just warned them, a day of the Lord is going to come. Have I not just done this? I told you, I told you I would do this if you did not obey. Here it is, I did it. Now I'm telling you, this day is coming too. And then he says, have, basically have I not, or has, he says has not has not, basically, all I said now happened. And what does that do for you as a follower of God? Somebody open Numbers 23:19 and read that, because that one came to my mind, I and mean, that's where we're going to close, because we ran out of time. I'm so sorry we did not get to do the listen, awake, the wail, the ashamed, and all the wise. I had a hundred more questions to talk about, but Numbers 23, 19. Because has not says it all. You don't even have to write the words, because what, what he elaborates on the next verses that follows it is all that he has already done. After he says, well, the day of the Lord is going to come, have I not done all this? Right? And so Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Does God lie? Does he, does he say he's going to do something and then not do it? There was another verse in here somewhere that says, um, uh, let me see if I can find it real quick because it was really good too, about um, in verse 11 of Joel 2, The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. God has warned, God has told, God has instructed, God has given opportunity for repentance. And he's saying, I told you what I was going to do. I have demonstrated to you that I will, in fact, do it, and I will do it. And when he says his day is coming, he says it will come. I love that, don't you? So then he, you can conclude that with, I just added the, the numbers uh, 2319 because I thought it kind of said it better than I can. Does God speak and not act? Yes. Yes, it's the pow. it's the warring God. It's the God of war. Why does he, why does he become a warrior in this book? That's right. That's exactly right. And it's also when you, see, when you think back on some of the things that he said before about uh, Israel, if you, if you do evil to Israel, I will do is, uh, evil to you. If you bless them, I will bless you. If you curse them, I will curse you. And he is the avenging God, the God of avenging. He says that in here too, that he is going to avenge them at the conclusion of Joel 3. Um, he says, "I will avenge their blood, which I have not yet avenged." And for those who did Revelation, remember, he talks about they're sitting before the altar. I think it's the fifth. I think it's the fifth seal, maybe. And they say, "How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood?" Right? Remember that? Here it is: "I will avenge their blood." Isn't that cool?